Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Tech Talks podcast, part of the IC CPD program. I'm Alex Wynne, the IC's Knowledge Content Director. The report, Good Progress But Not Fast Enough, Decarbonising Infrastructure, was published in 2021 by the Green Construction Board. It is a stock take of the progress made since 2013, when the Infrastructure Carbon Review, the government's recommendations to reduce carbon in infrastructure, was published. Good progress but not fast enough found that transport is the single biggest carbon emitting sector. While every other sector had reduced its emissions since 2013, the transport sector's emissions had increased by 3.9%. The biggest contributing factor to this is user carbon. As demand for new transport infrastructure increases, so too will the sector's capital and operational output. As transport infrastructure continues to be used and the effects of climate change increase, the need for maintenance will only grow. In the Department for Transport and Highways England Road Investment Strategy 2, it is estimated that in the investment period 2020 to 25, an anticipated £5.83 billion will be spent on capital maintenance and £14.12 billion on enhancements for the strategic road network. That's a lot of opportunity for capital and operational carbon. In order to fulfil the UK's commitment to reach net zero by 2050, all three types of carbon in the transport sector, capital, operation and user, must be addressed. The industry has already started to do so. National Highways, for example, has the Net Zero Highways Roadmap, which aims to get to net zero maintenance and construction emissions by 2040 and net zero road user emissions by 2050. In Network Rail's Our Ambition for a Low Emission Railway, the body sets out its plan to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2045 in Scotland and 2050 in England and Wales. Engineers are in a position to influence all three types of carbon, capital, operation and user, either directly or indirectly. Doing so will require fresh thinking, innovative solutions and a commitment to challenging the norm. To discuss what the industry is doing to reduce its carbon footprint and the role of civil engineers in more depth, I'm joined by two great guests today, Connor McCone and Stephen Elderkin. Connor is carbon manager at Skanski UK, where he combines industry knowledge with a strong passion for combating climate change. He developed and embedded Skanski UK's industry-leading net zero by 2045 carbon strategy which achieved a total annual emissions reduction of 15% in its first year and helped to establish various data-driven analysis methods that demonstrate a carbon cost relation. He completed an MBA with distinction from Imperial College Business School and a Master's in Carbon Management from the University of Edinburgh, is a chartered environmentalist and strives to cut carbon emissions in ways that reduce risk, create value and increase efficiency. Stephen is Director of Environmental Sustainability for National Highways and since his arrival has brought together the environmental teams and carbon team at National Highways into one central division. Under Stephen's stewardship and by working alongside the National Highways Board and its executive directors, the Environmental Sustainability Division's main goal is to cut carbon emissions across England's motorways and major A roads to net zero by 2050. Previously, Stephen was Chief Analyst for the same organisation when it was known as Highways England, 
when he had responsibility for advising and assuring value for money from investment in England's strategic road network and led the A12's £1 billion upgrade scheme. He has also worked for the Department of Energy and Climate Change and the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA. Connor, Stephen, welcome. Let's start by talking about the makeup of the transport sector's carbon footprint. There are three elements, capital carbon, operational carbon and user carbon. Can you tell us a bit more about what contributes to the carbon output for each of those? So capital carbon, operational carbon are both a bit like CapEx and OpEx. Um, so cap, CapEx, the capital expenditure, is basically all of the cash that it takes to build a job or an asset. Uh, capital carbon is quite similar to that. It's all of the carbon that's embodied in all of the materials and the construction processes that we use to build that project or asset. So that includes everything from the raw material extraction, the processing of those materials, the transport globally um, of getting at the site and then assembling all of those materials. And that's effectively what capital carbon is. Operational carbon then is the OPEX site. So it's, it's a bit like the operational expenditure and that's the any of the carbon associated with operating that asset, which is, it could be the electricity and the lighting and the signal systems. It could be um, the energy taken to run the pumping systems, any of the things that basically it takes to operate that asset. Yeah, and I think um, adding to that, we've we've set three targets. So we plan to be net zero for our corporate emissions by 2030. That's all of the operational emissions that Connor's just mentioned. Net zero by 2040 for all our construction and maintenance emissions. That's all the capital carbon that um, uh, Connor's just mentioned. And then by 2050, net zero for our road user emissions, which is kind of another scope outwards in terms of operational emissions. And I'm guessing civil engineers and, and associated professionals are a little more in control of the first two and maybe more familiar, I guess, from like you were saying there, Connor, is the CAPEX and OPEX language. That's something that's quite familiar to them. So hopefully, is it is it easier for them to engage with that part of it at the moment and scarier for them on the bigger picture piece, Stephen? Or is it, you know, um, much of muchness? So I think a lot of focus has been on the capital carbon. Uh, we've had challenges around carbon for our construction projects, how they are consistent with carbon budgets. But if you're serious about decarbonising the transport sector, you need to be thinking about tailpipe carbon. So our footprint last year, 98.4% of it was from tailpipe. So construction carbon is somewhat dwarfed by the tailpipe carbon. And the reason why it's important is we need to be thinking about what we're doing to bring tailpipe carbon down. That will have implications for what we build. So the carbon reduction hierarchy is about building nothing, building less, building smart, building efficiently. The way of reducing your construction carbon by 100% is to build nothing. And that links to if we can manage uh, demand on our network, make the existing asset uh, more productive, support more journeys without building more lane capacity, all of that helps us both in terms of tailpipe carbon, but it also uh, obviously reduces the construction carbon. So there, there is a link between the two. I think just to add that from a, I work for a major contractor. So from a, a contractor's perspective, we've typically looked at the capital carbon or been asked to look at the capital carbon, but we're asked now a lot more these days to look at the whole life carbon. So can we make suggestions when building these assets that reduce the carbon across the whole lifetime of the project, not just at the construction phase, because 
You can do things like use different materials with uh, a longer uh, lifetime that mean you have to maintain them less and things like that. So it's that balance as well that we're starting to look at uh, and our clients are starting to be much more interested in. So we're moving away from just looking at we're responsible for capital carbon to looking at the whole the whole project's lifetime. I think that's really helpful, making it all the more tangible for each discipline in, in the professional world that can impact those targets that you've just mentioned. I guess um, if we stay with some of the, the smaller scale things or, or more here and now scale things um, first, and then we'll come back to the, the big picture. What are some of the easy wins for engineers? What are some of the things they can do quickly, relatively easily to cut carbon on transport projects? I think one of the first things that we can do is um, optimize the specifications that are already in place. So you don't um, even need to change the specifications of the design. You can just make sure that they're most carbon efficient as they can be. So the likes of working with our supply chain um, to optimize concrete mixes to increase the GGBS as much as possible. Uh, if you look at steel, for example, reinforcement, you can have different carbon intensities of, of steel reinforcement um, depending on where you procure it from. And that's just a procurement decision. It still meets the same standards, the same specifications. It's just being smart about um, using the most efficient uh, supply chain and, and plants. So that's a really easy step that we can do right from the get-go. Um, also, there's things like how we program works, such as uh, for piling, as an example, we traditionally have a 28-day strength testing period for piling, whereas if you push that out to 56, uh, because the, the piles aren't going to be loaded, as an example, then you can use a, a less strong concrete mix, which means less cement, um, which means it's not only cheaper, but it also uh, will get the strength by the end of the 56 days. And it's just switching how we program those works and you know pushing back on some of the, the standards that are maybe just the traditional way of doing things. And that's often what we've heard over the years is sometimes that the standards or the procurement processes prevent those, I guess, you know, significant, but essentially tweaks to how things are done. And that's showing that actually you don't need to be so blocked and immediately confined by what you perceive to be the existing protocol, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just an, another quick one would be, we do value, value engineering a lot, um, and it's usually to save cost but if you see a program materials or energy you are reducing carbon as well so if you're doing a calculation to demonstrate the cost savings um, and producing a case study for a client or externally put the carbon numbers in there as well so it's another lens to look at it and it brings it to the conversation makes it just um, you know front of people's minds when we're talking about these kind of things absolutely this reinforces uh, all of the incentives to be efficient and to deliver quality work and uh, we've got something like 20% rework or waste in the highway sector and all of that is extra cost, extra materials and extra carbon and um, so there's a win-win if you can, if you can uh, avoid that. You've just got to get really mean with materials. Um, so it's at the design stage, how can you, you lightweight things, how can you make sure you're not adding extra safety factors um, it's when you're on site and um, not having a, an extra wide trench and just slopping it full of concrete, but let's, let's do this in a, in a quality way um, and, and getting it right. And 
you know, the, the huge amount of emissions are embedded within the materials, but also the transport of those materials to and from site. So if you can get mean with materials, you'll, you'll, you'll make some quick wins on, on carbon. And are they, and we'll come on to the bigger issues and the, the grander scale, but are they, are they fundamentally feeling like they will change significant amounts of how the industry works so that you will make those increasingly significant gains? Because again, we're just asking people here, to do what they do today, but better. Is that essentially that message in, in that context? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just to build on what Stephen was saying on um, you know getting mean with materials, there's a really nice example from one of the big house building firms that they looked at their concrete use in their foundations and they were saying they were overusing concrete and they weren't sure why. What they looked at was the, the bucket digger was wider than the, the foundation should be. And they then manufactured their own bucket diggers to be exactly the same width. And that meant that they were just, you know, it's a it's a cost saving, it's a carbon saving straight away. And sometimes it's, you know, it, it takes looking at it through the carbon lens to identify these hotspots and, and you can lead to other efficiencies. But I think the, the stat from, um, I've heard, I think from the UK GBC, maybe was 11% of materials and construction sites go straight to landfill basically, or well, straight to waste because it's it's either been overordered or it's um, it's just not been used, which is a is a much high uh, much too high of a statistic in a industry that's got such thin profit margins. It's fascinating how simple it can seem. Actually, in those examples, it's brilliant. Um, if these are apparently the the easier, quicker wins in that they're the same as what you're doing today, but better. The, if we're moving towards the longer term, the tailpipe emissions and the and yep. the things that engineers contribute to, but are maybe not completely in control of today and, and find it hard to see how they'll get there. How would you characterize those? Or what, would, what messages would you like to start sort of getting out to the industry? I think there are challenges at the construction level, but also at the strategic planning level and how we think about the transport system uh, across the whole UK and, and, and for us, how highways fit within that broader transport system. So in terms of construction, um, three big sources of emissions are uh, transport of stuff to and from site, diesel use on site for plant machinery and generators, and then the, the emissions embedded within the material. As we talked about, I think there is lots you can do to drive down uh, you know, get mean with the materials and drive that down, save the transport. But ultimately, we're going to have to move to zero emission plant and generators on site. We've said that all uh, all plant on our site will be zero emission by 2030. That's a, a challenge around investment and turning over all of the the machinery that exists within within our plant hire and our, our construction sector. Uh, we've said that all transport of materials to our sites will be zero emission by 2040. So. Um, I don't think we're yet at a point where everyone is super confident what the best HGV zero emission solution is, whether it's going to be hydrogen or a big battery or some kind of electric road system. Um, but um, you can see how that will go. But that is obviously, again, a big investment to change the, 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 the way the haulage firms and the freight industry works. In terms of materials, I, I hope that with that kind of build nothing, build less mentality, you're going to reduce the amount of material use um, perhaps by half. We, we're going to publish route maps for all of our key materials before the end of uh, the year. And, you know, standard changes 
um, new new materials like warm mixed asphalt or higher quality control batching plant for concrete mixes or whatever it might be uh, will bring uh, the emissions associated with those materials down again by another half perhaps uh, and a bit more. You're going to get a really hard to reduce residual in some of our core materials like steel, uh, concrete and asphalt and um, ultimately I think by the time we get into the 2030s it's going to need some serious industrial investment around carbon capture and storage for kilns, uh, green green hydrogen for furnaces or, or, or whatever it might might be. Um, but I think that isn't an excuse uh, for not taking the action that you can take now. You can make a really big step forward, uh, even ahead of those investments coming through. Like I mean, on the contrary, it sounds like that's actually really clear timeline mapping as well. The sort of getting ready for this. If things, as we know in this world, can take longer, then by that sort of reckoning, you're sort of setting out, you know, why it's going to be doable by 2030, 2040, 50 with each of those different targets. I think that's really, yeah, I, I hope that civil engineers are starting to see these bigger, more abstract thoughts as actually much more tangible with that example. I think we need to get better at challenging traditional specifications. Um, and, and when we do challenge them and trial them, then we need to scale them. Um, so we've seen low carbon concrete trials for the past 10 years again and again. It's usually in a low risk, two, two meter by two meter patch that's gonna see no action in the middle of nowhere. And you're like, well, okay, that's the one trial. Then we trial it again. We need to, to scale it up and we need to become more and more ambitious each time um, because we can't build things the way we've always built them and expect them to be lower carbon. So we're working with national highways on the likes of low carbon concrete and basalt reinforcement. So the basalt reinforcement is much lighter than steel, but it also doesn't corrode, so you, you can have a high alkaline content in the concrete. Um, so that's a win-win there. It's, um, it's, it's safer, it's lower carbon, um, and it's been pretty successful from what I can gather. That, but now we need to scale that and actually really use that in earnest because it has been proven. Um, and whether that starts in low-risk items of temporary works like haul roads, and we really use it there, and then once it's proven itself there, then put it into permanent works. We need to get better at it, I think, just accelerating that innovation. Where, are there still sort of remaining blockers there that you think need unlocking, or is it is it just actually we're kind of on the right track, we just need to nudge it forward a bit? Yeah, I think that the blocker um, often comes down to risk and who accepts the risk. Uh, and this is obviously a, a, an industry issue, but it's something that... We need to collaborate right across the value chain on um, the, the client, the designer, the contractor, and the supply chain, to name the four kind of categories of Path 2080. Uh, they all need to come together and, and agree on things. You're starting to see things like NEC Clause X29, where there's pain and gain um, for reducing carbon. So if you're putting these contractual obligations into the um, delivery of the project, there has to be some leeway on these traditional specifications because we can't um, reduce our carbon or else be hampered reducing our carbon and then not meet our target and get financially penalised as well. So it is, it's complex and it'll take, I'm sure, the next couple of years to work it out. It's a new clause that's, um, that's just come out recently. So uh, we haven't seen it used in earnest yet, but I think that these are things that the, the industry is going to have to, like a big challenge the industry is going to have to overcome in the coming years. Um, and what role does offsetting play in all of this? What are your thoughts, Connor, on, on offsetting? 
So as a as a business, as a um, Skanska, we have decided not to offset. Um, and the reason we did this for a couple of reasons. So as a contractor, we feel that uh, you know there's razor thin profit margin, margins, but we also feel that that money is going to be have to spend year on year, basically offsetting. Um, so we will do it when our, our clients want us to, or it's built into our contract, or also when a, a supplier supplies a product that is offset and built in because you know we don't want to double count, um, or well, not count the offset and that's already been built in. But we feel that the money could be better used in the innovation and R&D within our industry rather than a kind of leaking out of not only the industry, but possibly even the country. They do offsets go to, to great causes around the world, um, you know, reforestation in, in countries. And we understand why they do them, but um, we, we feel that for us, we're going to reduce it as much as possible in line with kind of science-based targets, get it down 90%. And then the hard to beat is when we might consider it, and we're talking 2040, 2045 uh, kind of timeline. And from the client perspective, Stephen, what's, what's your views so, so I'm really keen that offsetting doesn't distract us from the good work that Connor and others in the supply chain are doing, which is to drive down the emissions within the project. And that has to be the number one focus. So the risk with offsetting is it's easy to buy some offsets. I'll stop really worrying about the emissions that I control. So that, that would be a bad place to be. Um, there will be residual emissions, so we're not going to get to zero in construction uh, quickly. It's challenging to get there by 2040. Um, the question is, if you've done everything you can within that project context, could it also be helpful to then offset the residual emissions? And I, I can see a couple of reasons why it would be. Um, so one, it would uh, provide an incentive. So if you're paying for those offsets, it provides an incentive for you to reduce the residual emissions as low as possible. So that creates a carbon price within the project. That's a good thing. And, and secondly, I think it would help with the kind of uh, acceptability of large construction projects if that residual is being offset by quality, uh, quality offsetting projects. But it needs to be funded. So it's not realistic that uh, in, in the thin margin industry that we're in that uh, suppliers are, are going to fund those offsets uh, themselves. So I think it is almost a, uh, it's a client, but actually it's our client, uh, is decision whether they want to go for carbon neutral as a stepping stone to net zero. And I think that will be part of the conversation for our next investment strategy. Do you have any examples yet where maybe a local or a small scale offsetting has been acceptable and appropriate and worked? Or is it guess just early days on on the advent of good offsetting or more you know less controversial offsetting yeah so we we've had a small scale uh, renewals project in in uh, on the a a590 I, I think which uh, included offsetting and was carbon neutral um, so that was a, a kind of a, an experiment for us and lower Thames crossing on a larger scale is looking at um, what they can do to leave a carbon uh, positive legacy uh, and so therefore go some way to offsetting the the residual emissions associated with that construction project. That's interesting again using that phrase carbon positive I suppose if it's if it actually improves the situation then there's a, a, a maybe an added gain there to to consider it more upfront as. Yeah so 
that their ambition is very much to be our first uh, major infrastructure project that uses hydrogen at scale for the very large uh, construction machinery. Uh, not feasible to do with with batteries. They're looking at a uh, a way of working with a an investment to get local source of green hydrogen. If that all goes through, they will both have helped create demand for hydrogen machinery. That's a good signal to the uh, to the plant machinery industry. They'll have also helped bring on a, uh, a, a local green hydrogen supply, which will be available to other people in the area. So. Um, you can see how that that legacy can can be left by our projects if we if we think creatively. Mm. I guess that's possibly the answer to the next question. So feel free to just say that is it. But um, if you had a different example, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity. It, the question was: Can you offer an exa uh, examples of innovative solutions or radical thinking that have meant a project has reduced carbon footprint? Or again, Connor, maybe you want to jump in as well with ideas on this one. Um, I think. There's usually not just one innovation that's going to radically change the carbon of a project. It's a multitude right across the, the whole project life cycle. So it's from the concept design, talking about the build less or build nothing. Do we even need to build this? Can we eliminate certain elements? Um, can we realign a, a section so we can take out a bridge in, in a highways project? You know, you can have these really big hitting moments. Um, at the start of the project, as you go through the the amount you can reduce the carbon, then decreases relatively rapidly. But even though all those incremental changes, they will all add up. And especially even in the, the later stages of the project, if it's something that you can do or implement that reduces the operational carbon of that asset, some of these assets, especially the large infrastructure ones, are going to be around for 100 years. So even though it might be a small saving, but year on year, that really stacks up. So it's, I think, not going to be one big hit and this is the way we always reduce carbon, but it'll just be the, the addition of all of these things together. I've, I've been posing a bit of a challenge to people uh, within National Highways. Is how do we get to the point where we switch off all of our roadside signs and signals? So I, my previous job, I was running uh, the A12 widening project and on a 20 kilometre section, uh, we were designing 80 gantries that have either you know signs or signals on them and that's all the steel all the concrete all the ongoing electricity use associated with those signs and signals um, whereas surely at some point we'll be able to have in-car information we won't need those on the side of the road um, and that could be a benefit we could offer better customer service uh, we could potentially improve safety so you'd know where the cars are if they're all connected. You'd immediately have information about live lane breakdown. Uh, but also visual impact is reduced and you save all that material and that carbon. And, you know, that's the kind of big transformational thinking that we probably need to think about. You're not going to get there incrementally. So how do we uh, get to a big switch off in 2035 or, or something? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, given, I think, you know, working on new civil engineer previously for years and smart motorways were a new concept just recently, really. And then I thought this is a radical uh, sort of transition of technology changing faster than perhaps the physical assets can keep up. And yeah, that's, I, I, do you think that's, that's going to be a widely popular view about these? It's massively challenging. So actually, when you start thinking it through, it's the whole way we manage and operate our network it's 
you know, you need a, a big social science uh, side to it and behavior side to it. Um, I think you'd need to signal it's happening a very long time ahead. So it's, um, but it's that kind of big thinking we will need, I think, to achieve both our safety objectives and, um, and our carbon objectives. Yeah. Some of that blue sky thinking stuff is, uh, it's pretty amazing. Once you see the likes of, I know he's a pretty contentious person, but Elon Musk's idea of robo-taxis that are fully autonomous driving around. Why do we need any of these signaling systems in the future? Um, so we could dramatically change the way we transport people uh, yeah, around the globe. But then it, it has its impacts. You know, Driving is, I think, the biggest profession in the US in its different forms. So you know, taxis, uh, HGVs, like delivery people. Um, so if you eliminate the need to drive, then you've got like serious social implications. So it, it is, the, there's there's huge um, decisions to be made around this kind of policy at a global level. Mm. And this conversation now is already moving into the idea around the, the numerous interdependencies across transport. And like you say, the wider social anthropological implications. Coming back to the sort of transport networks, though, there are even sort of great interdependencies there. And how, how important is it for engineers to increasingly have a full understanding of that wider transport networks and interchanges when they're making project decisions or advising on projects? I think that it is, it depends on the scale, I guess, of whatever it is that they're trying to introduce or, or change, but they can have huge implications. And another nice example is, if uh, there was a feasibility stu study done on a high-speed railway, um, you could probably guess which one. But uh, the, so what what they looked at was by increasing the tunnel size of the high-speed rail, um, it actually dramatically reduced the carbon over the lifetime of that project because there was less drag on every high-speed train that went through that tunnel, and it is in operation for maybe sixty years. There's twenty trains a day going through it. It reduces the energy by a huge amount it just takes a bit more capital carbon at the front end or capital expenditure at the front end to you know build a bigger asset but the way that the funding for that is set up and the way the company structure for that is set up it'll be a special purpose vehicle delivering it like a hs2 or a crossrail and then they cease to exist so they need to get more of a budget in place at the start and then ultimately the savings are going to be passed on to the train operating companies because they have a more efficient train going through the um, the tunnel. So that's just one example of how one decision, you know, at the very start can have huge implications across different um, the different parties and ownership uh, across the life, uh, the life cycle of that asset. So in that example, it's, it's really important to have a good grasp of who's going to benefit and how. Um, but if it's a smaller scale change where you just reduce materials and it's not going to have a knack on effect, then it's probably less of a, um, you have to have less of a understanding, I guess. I'm, I'm a, a slightly unfashionable fan of roads and I think they are hugely important for the prosperity of the country. Something like nine out of 10 miles traveled in the UK uh, are on road. Uh, they're how we get to work, they're how families get together, they're how we go on holiday how your loo rolls and baked beans get to you. So the, the roads are flexible and they connect everywhere to everywhere and they will continue to have a key role in the UK's transport system. So it's important that we get them to net zero. But I also want us to not be 
competitive with the other modes. So there are things that rail does better. Um, I used to work for Sustrans. I'm a real big fan of active travel. So if we can get the shorter journeys onto uh, walking and cycling options, then then that's that that's great too. And actually, if you can take a holistic transport planning approach, you might just you might not totally avoid the need for a road or an improvement to the road, but you might reduce the scale of the infrastructure that you need. You might reduce the size of the junction that you need. So I think having that holistic transport planning approach could uh, could be a big part of the answer to uh, reducing building less um, in, in this industry. Finally, what would you both say to engineers about their role in all of this? How can they use their skills to contribute to the decarbonisation of the transport sector? So I've been really clear internally. So we created this new carbon team within National Highways. We've kept it really small. Um, so we are four or five people in the central carbon team uh, in my division. And actions and ownership sits across the business. And I think one thing is it's everybody's responsibility. So whatever your role, you will have a role to play in terms of uh, carbon reduction. Um, We've seen some really inspiring action being taken amongst some of our supply chain. One particularly uh, visited uh, uh, WJ Group and they'd spent a year measuring and understanding what their carbon footprint was and then within a year reduced it by 80% because they understood it. And I, and I think a sort of understand, measure your carbon impact and then set about having a plan for managing and reducing it. And it's a really simple measure it, manage it. And the message there again, just you don't have to have a huge department dedicated to national highways is limiting it to just a handful of you. That's yeah. yeah we're convening, we're we're aligning, we're we're doing all the governance side of it. But actually, the the people who are best able to produce a new carbon estimating tool are our cost estimating team, or the people best able to work with supply chain around concrete are our category managers who already deal with concrete. So. You, you can't outsource carbon from, from the rest of what you do. It's part of being a good designer, a good civil engineer, is understanding your environmental impact. And Connor, in the contracting world, we've already talked a little about those fine margins. And, you know, what would you say to some of your contractor colleagues out there? Yeah, so I couldn't agree more with Stephen. Um, he said he had a team of four or five. That's about four or five times bigger than our team. <laughs> it's just, just me and the central team. But... Um, we have some carbon people on on projects, you know, where it's a particular focus. Um, but I, I agree. We've we've built it into our business plan 2024. Uh, it's got buy-in from our CEO Greg Craig and the executive management team, and it's it's really pushed out throughout the business. So it's it's everyone's responsibility. Each of the different sectors have their own plan um, with targets that are appropriate for them because it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. And also within the disciplines, the, the design teams, the procurers, the commercial teams, um, everyone has their own set of targets because um, even though I'm a, a carbon manager, I can't tell a designer or an engineer exactly what it is to reduce carbon. Um, they're the experts that should you know, be bringing those ideas to me um, or to the project or the asset or whatever it is. Uh, so I think everyone just really needs to, to play their part. And not only just internally, I think it's about collaborating across the value chain when delivering the asset as well. So um, working with the external designer, working with the clients like the National Highways, the Network Rails, um, and getting 
the the experts from the supply chain in as well because they they really know whatever product or service it is that they're supplying so they can tell us exactly how they can reduce their carbon and it's about making sure that we build that in getting people in early enough for them to actually so the design isn't too finalized or we're too late if we're if we're pouring concrete in the ground it's too late to change a lot so we getting that early involvement collaborating and then um yeah taking ownership throughout the business i think many reasons to be optimistic i would say so yeah yeah definitely um we had a conversation about this earlier actually just before but uh yeah i think so you have to be optimistic in this game i think so yeah no I definitely i think the construction industry in the past we released our net zero carbon target in 2019 we were the first major contractor to include the supply chain and be completely visible about the emissions associated with that uh, in those three years, the, the conversations that we're having are dramatically different. It was from three years ago when there was uh, partners within the value chain were saying, you know, what is this carbon or like, yeah, we, we're starting to think about it. Whereas now you have to really understand it um, and be pretty well versed in it to, to come to the table and, and win bids and win work and, and reduce as much as possible. There's huge energy in the in the industry now around uh, carbon and environment more more broadly. Um, Highways UK was last week. It's the annual big conference for the highways industry, and it felt like every talk was on the environment or on carbon. Certainly, uh, certainly more than half. And um, there's energy and enthusiasm. People want to be taking action now and 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 doing things. I, I presented to our annual management conference in National Highways, top 500 people in the company, and um, such excellent feedback from, from people who are really engaged by it. People want to be part of something positive, and um, you know, connecting the country is really important. That delivers a lot of value, but actually doing that in a way that also protects the, the needs of the future and, and is uh, making steps to be environmentally sustainable is a big motivator. If we don't get that right, I think we will struggle to attract people into the construction industry and into uh, into transport. Well, it does sound, you know, if you're seeing that sort of change in behaviour or attitude, that in itself in a short space of time is, I guess, the greatest reason for hope. Um, and yes, brilliantly put, both of you. Thank you so much, both of you, Connor and Stephen, for joining us and for sharing that expertise. It's a big thank you also to you, our listeners, for tuning in. You can learn more about this topic and discover more podcasts, videos and other resources on the IC Knowledge Hub, which is accessible via ic.org.uk. New content is launched regularly, so do keep a lookout. I've been your host, Alex Wynn. This was an IC Tech Talks podcast. I hope you can join us again soon.